0: get practice at getting those quick sips like Luke. Uh, uh, Welcome to Covenant Church. Oh, we'll dismiss our school-aged kids right now. Go ahead and get out of here. We're glad that you could join us this morning. Uh, If you're new here or you just weren't listening to Jason just a minute ago, uh, my name is Connor McDonald, and uh, I work here at Covenant. And so uh, I have the awesome privilege to look at God's Word uh, with you this morning for a few moments. Uh, so let's quit messing around and jump in. Um, now, I can't uh, speak for everyone, but I would assume that most of us, to some degree, care what other people think about us. Even uh, the biggest Luke Allens who say and act like they do not care what others think or say about them has to care just a little, right? I mean, I'm sure you care what Ashley says or thinks about you, your kids, or what your mom says or thinks about him, right? Right. Um, My point is that all of us, from the hardcore Luke Allens to the most people-pleasing care what other people think about us, person, uh, we all want to have a good reputation and leave behind some sort of legacy that says, uh, I wasn't completely pointless. We want others to say that we're a good spouse or a good friend or a good parent or a good leader. We want our families to be proud of us. We want others to respect us. We want a good reputation. So what would you want the, the epitaph on your headstone to be? You know, what would you want it to say on your headstone after you're gone? Some of the classic ones, there's a beloved father, a beloved mother, uh, a lifetime of laughter and love, friend to many, stranger to none. Uh, but seriously, what would you want on it? Loved others fiercely? was the funniest person in the room? A devoted follower of Jesus? The answer to that question, what would you want the epitaph on your your headstone to be, tells what you're seeking after. It, it, It tells what you're putting your trust in, it says what you're putting your energy and time into, what you're devoting your life to. Now, if you've been with us, we've been uh, walking through the letters of John. And last week, Jason took us through 2 John. And this week, we'll be going through uh, John's final letter, 3 John. And uh, this is a very quaint and brief letter. uh, But in it, we see four characters, four men, and each of them left behind a different reputation. The short letter of 3 John gives us insight into four men and who they were and what their reputation was. So, uh, if, you would, uh, if you're cool with it, uh, I'm going to read the whole thing. Actually, even if you're not cool with it, I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, but first, let me pray for our time together. Uh, God, thanks for today and just your love for us and that you sent Jesus to die for us. And now we can come to a place like this and we can sing songs about you and worship you and we can look at your word and learn about you. Uh, I just pray that uh, all the distractions would be, would be removed and that we would uh, see you through Third John. It's in your name I pray, amen. Uh, so Third John says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers but also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you, the friends greet you, greet the friends each by name." This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, as I stated a moment ago, this letter gives us uh, just quick snapshots into the lives of four men, and each of them teach us something different we see four different men and the legacies that they left behind. In verses 1 through 8, we we deal with a man named Gaius. He's a beloved and righteous man This is who's receiving the letter. In verse 9 and 10, we deal with Diotrephes. Uh, He's a a real stinker. He's a prideful, selfish man. In verse 11 and 12, we encounter a man named Demetrius. He's a man with a good testimony and who's a good example in the church. And, of course, you have the man who wrote the letter, the Apostle John, and you can see him all throughout the letter, who he's really highlighted in verses 13 and 15, and we see this aging John, Grandpa John, who has a pastor's heart. Now, uh, a key difference between 3rd John and, and John's two other letters, 1st and 2nd John, is that 3rd John is written to an individual. First and 2 John are written generally to ter- churches and uh, congregations, but 3 John is written to a man named Gaius, and each one of John's letters that he penned down dealt with fellowship in some way or another. First John deals heavily with uh, fellowship with God, and right? we see all the, throughout that if you love me you'll keep my commands, those who abide do this. It's about fellowship with God. Second John, on the other hand, cautions who we fellowship with. Do not fellowship with deceivers or antichrists, as John calls them. And then we have 3 John, just a short, quick 15 verses. And in it, it paints a picture of fellowship with one another, with the family of God, the church. It shows us four men and them doing the Christian life together and what they actually cared about. So, as we're studying each character, listen and, and consider if anyone here sounds something like you, and spoiler, Diatrephes is the one you don't want to sound like. So first, we have the recipient of this letter, who John wrote this to, the beloved Gaius. So who is Gaius? Who is this man that John is writing to? Oh, we don't know for sure. Uh, Gaius was a very common name of the day, and several men by that name actually appear throughout the New Testament. There's Gaius of Corinth, and he's mentioned in Romans 16. There's Gaius of Macedonia, and he's mentioned in Acts 19, and there's Gaius of Derby, and he's mentioned in Acts 20. And uh, scholars think that it's none of those options. So we don't know much about this man named Gaius, but what John writes to him tells us a lot about this mysterious figure. Mainly that he was an excellent man and follower of Jesus. John writes, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be good in good health as it goes well with your soul. So again, little is known about Gaius, but it seems that he had some sort of physical difficulty or ailment. John prays that Gaius' physical health would match the health of his soul which we read is in good shape, it's doing well. So Gaius had some sort of physical health deficiency, but the health and well-being of his soul was top-notch. One commentary asked a good question regarding this verse, it said, What if someone were to pray for you and ask God to bless you physically to the same degree you are healthy spiritually? And what if God answered that prayer? So what would be the condition of your physical health if it matched the condition of your soul? Would you be in good health? Would you be just sick in bed? Would you be near death? Would you need to be hospitalized or would you be the picture of physical health? As the commentary put it, Gaius was soul healthy. So take a moment, consider the condition of your soul run it to its primary care physician, run all the tests, let your soul get its knee hammered, its finger pricked, its blood pressure taken, all the things, and ask yourself, is my soul in good condition, or is it moments away from giving up and dying? And if that's too general, run some tests, ask yourself, what does my quiet time look like? Do I enjoy spending time with God? Do I enjoy gathering with other believers? Do I enjoy worship or prayer or serving? Do I know how to rest like we're about to do this whole next month, rest in a way that stirs my affections for Jesus? Am I hiding from other believers? Am I carrying around unconfessed sin? And if there's a problem with the answer to any of those questions, it doesn't mean that your your soul is on its deathbed, it may just mean it's a little under the weather. Uh, So, the medicine is the same for all the soul, colds, and flus, And, and even if you're in good condition, it's Jesus. You need 10 cc's of Jesus stat, run to him, remind yourself of his faithfulness. If you ever doubt Jesus, you only have as far back as the cross to look. Is your soul in good condition? So Gaius' soul, his spiritual life, was healthy. And that could be seen by the way he lived. John wrote, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Again, how did John and others know about the health of Gaius' soul? By the way he walked and talked. His life was evidence of a healthy believer. Gaius walked in the truth. A healthy Christian life is tied to walking in the truth, living out what you believe. This is what it means to walk in the truth. We can say we believe the Bible. We can know all the facts. We can go to all the Bible studies, but it's not enough just to know the truth. It's not enough just to know the truth. We should walk in it as well. Walking in the truth is living in light of what we know to be true. For instance, in in 1 John 4, John wrote, we love because He first loved us. The truth is that God loves us. We know this. This is all throughout the Bible and the cross exemplifies this truth that God loves us. Jesus died for us. That's a lot of love. But John tells us that because of that truth, that God loves us, we are then to love others. We love because he first loved us. So walking in the truth is taking the things we know and living in light of them. James stresses this point in his letter. He wrote, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the one who knows the truth and does nothing about it it's like a man who looks in the mirror and he, and he studies his features. James said that he, he looks at his features intently. And as he's walking away, he forgets what he looked like. Meaning, the person who reads and hears truths about God and does nothing about them is as foolish as a man who forgets what he looks like. But there is this blessed man, on the other hand, who does something about what he has seen and learned about God. God didn't just create the Bible for you to have all this head knowledge about Him, but to change the way you live in light of what you learn and read about Him in it. That's what it means to walk in the truth. Reading this book and then going and serving the homeless or befriending an outcast or loving the unlovable or giving generously or forgiving someone. It's seeing Jesus and His goodness and then going out and imitating Him. We should walk in the truth. Think about what most non-believers say about Christians in the first place. They say that they are anybody hypocrites. They say, uh, right? They say that they follow Jesus but they're out doing the same things that everyone else does. They say the same things, they act the same way, they live the same way. This is why being a Christian isn't very appealing to many people watching because they see the church relishing in the same things that they are. So we have to walk in the truth. We have to do what we believe. We just look like everyone else, but the difference is we go to church. We have to walk in the truth. So Gaius was crushing it. His spiritual life was healthy. He lived in obedience. And a final thing we see about him is that he faithfully served and supported the church. John commends Gaius and tells him that what he is doing is a good and faithful thing. Commentaries say that it seems that there were some uh, traveling pastors, and that's these strangers that John mentions that Gaius was interacting with, and they would go back to John and testify about his love and hospitality. Gaius understood the importance of supporting these men. He knows that what they were doing, as John put it, was in the name of Jesus and that they were working in a manner worthy of God. Ultimately, he knew that ministry was a valuable thing to spend his time, energy, and money investing in. And by by doing so, he himself became a fellow worker of the truth. John wrote, we ought to support people like these. The men that he was referring to, that he was talking about there, were these men who devoted their lives to ministry. These men specifically had gone out, taking no money from the world, relying on the hospitality and support of other believers, all for the sake of the name of Jesus. So you may not be a full-time minister, you may not physically go where the ministers you know go, You may not do what the ministers you do uh, know do, but you can go with them by your support. Yeah, some people are called to full-time ministry, but all of us are called to pray. All of us are called to support. All of us are essential to cooperate together to do the work of God. How are you supporting the church and her ministers? Babysit their kids. There you go. Now, John's letter takes a turn here in verse 9. It says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So, if Gaius is the picture of a healthy believer, then his counterpart, Diatrephes, is the opposite. As one commentary put it, Diatrephes is basically Gaius' alter ego. Diatrephes is this interesting character who we see liked to put himself first, he wanted to be in charge, he wanted to be the boss. So this isn't an issue of what he believed or what he thought, but of pride. And sadly, this sounds not too far off from a lot about what we see. It's not too far off from a lot of what we see in the church today. A pastor, or a deacon, or a prominent layman, or an influential family using the church to advance their own agendas. These people use the church to gain power and influence, and even financial gain. And it's gross because they use the church as a means to get what they want. And so, Diotrephes is this, this cautionary tale for all of us not to be driven by our prideful ambition, certainly not as we enter into the church. Diotrephes' pride extended even so far that he even discredited John and his authority. John, I don't know if you know this, but he's a man who walked with Jesus firsthand. That is how arrogant Diotrephes was, that he discounted a man who personally knew Jesus so that he could be in charge. John John said Diotrephes was talking wicked nonsense against him and these traveling pastors. He is just lying and gossiping. Proverbs 26.20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases meaning, if you use the analogy that Proverbs is using, gossip is the kindling of a fire. No wood means no fire, so no gossip, disunity will diminish. Gossiping and lying about one another is one of the most disunifying and harmful things we can do as a faith family. It's like kindling and more and more gossip just increases the fire. So let us recognize the harmfulness of gossip, it's a sin that's kind of, you know, push aside because it's not as big a deal, but let us recognize the harmfulness of it and see the example of Diatrephes and how John said that he was being dumb and let us quit all that, that talk about each other. So simple, Diatrephes was a jerk. He put himself first, he wanted to be in charge and he would do anything to get there, even lie and slander others. And what's more, even there, we see him that he even decided to be cold to and refuse to welcome the brothers. He was being intentionally inhospitable. And what a warning for us, whether we're being intentionally inhospitable to someone or we're being accidentally inhospitable. One of the pillars of the church, something that we should consider to be really important, is Hospitality. This, this place, this gym should be a space where believers and sinners alike can come and they can see God and not feel ashamed. So this starts up front. This is a culture thing. We have to want to be hospitable. So to remind ourselves, we should ask why. Why should we be hospitable? Well, for starters, if we're not hospitable, we make the church and Jesus unattractive. If, if we're not being hospitable, we're saying that this place is just for us. This is what Diatrephes was doing, making the church just for himself. We become a church that uh, is like a country club, that only cares about itself, that uh, is focused about itself, who doesn't want people different from them to come, where its members form cliques and they just come here and consume. That's what happens when we're inhospitable. So why are we hospitable? because God was hospitable with us. We have no quality or trait that God should look at us and say, I want them. Left to ourselves, we're enemies of God. But despite our sin and despite our undesirability, God chased us down and welcomed welcomed us into his family. And despite the fact that we continue to fail, he continues to welcome us back with his arms open. So now we should walk in that truth. We welcome because God first welcomed us. So no matter a person's situation or looks or race or class or their failures or anything, we should be hospitable. The church should be a place where people can come and they are known and they feel loved and welcomed and not judged. We, we should be hospitable. We should be welcoming. And, and so this takes a step out of comfort. What we want to do is we want to sit, sing, listen, and leave. But we should invest in the people around us and the new ones who come in here. Because if we don't, we'll quickly become like our friend Diatrephes, who made church about himself by being arrogant, a gossip, and inhospitable. So not wanting to le- linger too long on Diotrephes, John makes another turn and begins to talk about another man named Demetrius. Picking up in verse 11, John writes, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself we also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So in this letter John has crafted what I'm calling a good example sandwich. He began with Gaius, he stuck Diatrephes in the middle, and then he brought us back to another brother who is doing well. John was aware that that wicked men like Diatrephes often gain followers. He knew that we all imitate someone. So he's stressing that we should imitate someone like Gaius or Demetrius. John says, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. He's saying, don't imitate evil such as Diotrephes, but imitate good like Gaius and Demetrius. And John gives us another imperative, another uh, cause and effect relationship. He says, whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil hasn't even seen God. Meaning, if you are God's child, you will do good. The person who does not know God will do evil, whatever they want. Again, believers should live lives that are marked by doing good. This goes back to what we talked about earlier. We should live these lives that give tangible evidence that we know God. Theologian B.F. Westcott wrote, He who does good proves by his actions that his life springs from God. Of course, something that is always helpful to remind us of when we're, we're talking about doing good is that doing good doesn't save us. We don't do these good things to impress God or others or to earn our salvation. Our salvation has already been earned and bought and secured By Jesus' blood, His work on the cross and His righteousness is what saves us. Good works don't save us, but now we have been saved to do good. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if we know God, we should do good. But we don't do good to be saved. We are saved to do good. Alistair Begg, he's a Scottish pastor, uh, but he he, uh, pastors in Ohio, and he's really great. You should listen to him. And uh, one time, he was talking about salvation and and good works and and doing good in in a sermon one time. And uh, I'm going to retell what he said a bit and paraphrase it. He said, if we do not preach to ourselves daily the cross, if we don't remind ourselves of the cross all day, every day, then we will quickly revert back to a faith plus work salvation. There's the age-old question of, when I die, if I was given entry to heaven, what would I say? And if we answer that, if you answer that question in the first person, you have immediately gone wrong. If we say, because I. Because I believe this, because I did that, because I have faith, because I did good, we've gone wrong. The only right answer is in the third person, because he. Then he says, think about the thief on the cross. He didn't ever go to a Bible study. He never was baptized. He didn't even know anything about church membership, but he made it. He gets into heaven and he does like this little story, but he says, and they they come to him and they say, how did you make it in here? And he says, I don't know. And they say, well, are you you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And he says, never heard of it. And he says, okay, we'll go to an easier one. What, What about the doctrine of scripture? Surely you've heard of that. And he just stares back at him. And finally, they all get frustrated and they say, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said that I could come. Friends, our works don't matter. It's only because Jesus left the glory of heaven and put on flesh and lived a life that we can't. A life without mess-ups or failures. He was perfect. Yet he died in our place. The perfect son of God died so that I could be called a son an imperfect son. So rest in your salvation. Jesus already did the hard work. Now we do good because the greatest good has been done for us. Demetrius was a man with a good example and a good testimony. All those traveling pastors would return to John and share a good testimony of Demetrius. Over time, people watched Demetrius, and as they watched, they saw a man who loved Jesus and others. They saw a man who was godly and full of integrity. They saw a man that they could point to and say, imitate him. And John earlier told us to imitate good. So ultimately, we should imitate Jesus. If we're to imitate good, then Jesus is the goodest good we can imitate. So Hebrews 12, 2 says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We imitate him. And then on top of that, we need earthly men and women who are godly to look to, who encourage and inspire and disciple and challenge us. And that's what John is doing. He was giving these earthly examples to imitate. So my question is, could that be said about you? Could others whisper to other people as you walk by and point to you and say, be like them? Are you worth imitating? Can others look at you and say, I'm going to go out and live like them? This is like kind of a hard and scary question, but the truth is other people are watching. So are you worth imitating? Could word get round that you received a good testimony? We don't know much about Demetrius, but we know that he was a man that was worth imitating. Are you? Now John wraps this thing up. He writes, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk uh, face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. This final greeting, as well as the whole letter, the fact that John wrote this thing shows us that he cared deeply for others and that he loved them. We see this aging John sharing his heart, the heart of a pastor. Third John's really cool because it's one of those letters that, that's actually it's like really personal and, and heartfelt. All throughout the letter, John called Gaius beloved. This is someone he truly loved and cared for. John also shares his concerns for Diatrephes and Demetrius. These are people he knew by name and how they were doing and how they were acting. He has a lot of catching up he wants to do, but he's saving it to come and see them personally. He's saying pen and ink are cool, but John longed to come and see them himself. That's why COVID stunk so much for us with all the Zooms calls. Everyone was disconnected and having to interact on phones, but it couldn't replace or come close to a physical gathering because nothing can replace this. Again, John calls them beloved, he calls them friends, he loves these people, he's showing us that this is a family affair. And when you think about John, this makes sense. This is the beloved disciple, and now he's calling someone he cares about, beloved. Maybe you just like that word. John understands that this church thing is to be a family that truly loves one another and does life together. This is the guy who rested his head on the shoulder of Jesus. It only makes sense that he understands the love of God that then bleeds into how He loves others. I mean, think about the end of Jesus' life. He's hanging on the cross, and he looks at John and he says, "John, you see my mom, Mary there?" She's your mom now. And then he looks at his mom and says, John, I mean, Mary, mom, you see John? This is your son now. That's one of the last seven things that Jesus says before he died. He designates a new uh, mom to Mary. Mom to, oh my goodness. Cut that, cut that, cut that. <clears throat> that is one of the last seven things that Jesus says before he dies. He designated a new son to Mary, and a new mom to John. Meaning that those who believe in Jesus, us in this room who believe, are more family than we are family with our family that doesn't believe. The problem is that we don't often act like we're a family. You think about how a family works, even the annoying uncle who says dumb things, you still love them, they're still your family. Not here. Someone says something dumb to you here and you will never forget it or forgive them. Someone wears a hat, someone has a big nose, someone's kid bites your ankle, they do anything that rubs you the wrong way and it's over, no grace. We're all sinners. Again, believers are more family than they are with their lost family members. So let us commit to giving grace to one another. This doesn't mean we have to agree on every topic or belief, but Jesus should be more unifying to us than any stupid political belief is divisive. Jesus should outshine any different opinion we have. And so John closes by saying, greet the friends by name. I love what one commentary said, it said, like John who reflected the heart of God, who saves us one by one, we too should love and care in the same manner, one by one. By name, like John says, because we are to be a family unified by Jesus. This is what Jesus told the disciples after He washed their feet. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The thing that shows that we are believers to everyone else that's watching is us loving one another. Jesus himself said, by this, all people will know that we are followers of Jesus if we love one another. So the final letter of John, it's really intimate and personal. Uh, It's it's pretty easy to just brush over and, and rush through because it is just 15 verses. It's barely even half a page in my Bible, but it did make it into the Bible meaning it has truths for us to learn and see and apply. So, Ben, you can go ahead and get up here. We, we're about to enter into a time of prayer, and there's going to be some people in the back that you can pray with if you need to. And so take this time and really think. Consider, I'm about to ask some questions, consider what I'm about to say and really pray through it as we enter into this time. So who do we want to be? Who do you want to be? What is the reputation you want? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Because that reputation, that legacy that you're chasing after says who you want to be. Diotrephes' reputation was that he was arrogant, a gossip, and inhospitable. So guess what? He chased after his own desires. He was selfish. He was an enemy of the church. Or... We can leave behind all that mess and fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And when that happens, when we chase after Jesus instead of our own desires, our reputation should shout that we are children of God's. Who do you want to be? Let's pray. God, thanks for... Uh, just your goodness and loving kindness towards us through Jesus and that uh, you sent him to uh, pay for our sins. And that now uh, that we are in this new family, we're to truly be a family. That, That the watching world will know that we are yours by how we love one another. And so I thank you for this short quaint book of 3rd John that Teaches us how to love one another and interact with one another. And let us uh, imitate good instead of evil and not be like Diatrephes. Uh, thank you for this time together. Thank you for all you do for us. It's in your name, I pray. Amen.